Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Systemic risk is the risk of collapse of an entire financial system or entire market. Let's hear Roger's expertise on the subject and how we can approach it. I think many in our listening audience would agree that we are forced to deal with significant and increasing lifestyle-determining risks. I also suspect for most of us the concept of risk that we know from the time we were born has expressed itself in terms of low stakes, disturbances, inconveniences, or simply outcomes of trying new foods or watching new movies. In full disclosure, I grew up on a farm and then in a small city in the Midwest. Day-to-day or low-stakes risks at the time were quite manageable, although not necessarily welcome. For example, the risk of equipment failure during the intense periods of ground preparation, planting crops, and harvesting. The next major risk, which determined lifestyle for perhaps a year or two at the time, was crop failure due to drought or severe rainstorms. My main point is that for many of us, We're accustomed to taking low-stakes personal risks, and we learn how to mitigate them as best we can. For example, in the crop example, we could diversify the crops planted with differing planting and harvesting dates, and further diversify with plants needing differing levels of rainfall. However, we could never anticipate a systemic or all-encompassing set of risks like the Dust Bowl conditions in the 1930s that wiped out thousands of farms as well as thousands of banks. Systemic risk is an unpopular topic as we have little or no experience dealing with each specific risk. For some, pointing out risks is known as a tool for insurance salespeople to sell more product. Additionally, for some, discussing systemic risk is too scary, much like opining about a future major earthquake for those living near the San Andreas Fault. But in that case, we're talking about earthquakes. Systemic risks presently are bringing our whole nation's future to our attention, and these are larger and longer lasting than earthquakes, and as bad as they are, they last a short amount of time, and rebuilding can be done relatively quickly. America has faced a long list of systemic risks since 1776, including whether we'd win the Revolutionary War, whether we would prevail in World War I with our allies, whether we would retain our independence and economic growths as outcomes of the Great Depression. And by the way, in the Great Depression, we had many riots in our major cities, whether we would prevail in World War II, and whether the use of the atomic bomb, which was never discharged before, would change the entire global atmosphere in severe ways. That was not at all certain that it would not. Systemic risk doesn't have to be global to impact the lives of many millions of Americans. The 0809 Great Recession emerged from risks that were identified years earlier and then ignored as manageable. It's useful to remember that financial risks are not just financial. Yes, many lenders, including major banks, failed or were rescued in that period, but the real impact hit homeowners and small businesses. Our market regulators and the Federal Reserve and even Congress at the 11th hour back then worked together to stabilize our market systems, including additional liquidity and bailout monies. Now, systemic risk 
is impacting us, but the risks are so many and each is so intense that we ourselves risk paralysis, not paralysis by analysis, but paralysis by a sheer amount of information thrown at us every day, as well as confusion. Instead of measured actions to reduce our personal and family risks, in the broadest terms, here are some of the risks that we must ultimately deal with for our own future stability in a world that is unstable and becoming more unstable. First of all, just as in the Great Depression years, the pillars of our democracy are threatened by civil unrest. And I welcome you to Google Depression years, riots. What we are going through in our major cities now has different underpinnings, but nevertheless, as a country, we've actually been there before. And we were there before in the 1800s and the 1700s. I don't recommend being here, but we've been here before. As I mentioned, just as in the Great Depression, the pillars of our democracy are threatened by civil unrest, high unemployment, quests for political power, and out-of-control government deficit spending at all levels of government. Adding to the system risks, income and wealth distribution, again, have become very concentrated, with the groups of the super-rich vying for political control, and in my view, also supporting the organized riots that seem to be spreading from city to city. Please know my focus is economic growth, employment growth, and the maintenance of our country's 200-plus years of problem-solving and successes, and not politics. In other words, how should we de-risk the current issues as best we can for ourselves and our families? Since we have to live in this world of increasing systemic risk, just like farming, we can't control the weather, but we can plan actions to mitigate weather damage. We can't eliminate systemic risks, but we can better protect ourselves from them. Secondly, throughout this podcast series, we have focused on the small number of high net worth funds and families that control many of our stock, bond, and currency markets every day. The names of these money movers remain obscure except when they fail or cause other large institutions to fail. For example, in recent days, I'll reference one that became public, SoftBank a large venture capital or hedge fund located in Japan and run by Mr. Mahayoshi Son, S-O-N. This is the firm that reportedly manages money for Saudi Arabia and other ultra-high net worth sovereign wealth funds globally. This is also the firm that lost over $20 billion on its investments when WeWork failed. We should note that SoftBank additionally lost over $70 billion in the 2000-2001 dot-com crash. Let's talk about recent weeks. SoftBank, according to the Financial Times, appears to be one of the main reasons the tech stock boom has resulted in the NASDAQ hitting new highs most days over the past month. Long story short, the Financial Times now reports that consistently bought call options on tech stocks valued at more than $30 billion generated, as of last week, $4 billion of paper profits for SoftBank. Of course, this can't continue, and these stocks will reverse course when these options are sold or converted. But for now, the euphoria continues as SoftBank and some other large funds move the tech leaders ever upward. 
We know that the value of Apple stock is now greater than the entire Russell 2000 companies, and that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, and Microsoft account for 25% of the entire value and almost all the recent upward movement of the Standard & Poor's 500 index of stocks. My take is that we're looking into the face of substantial systemic stock risk with virtually all the indices at all-time highs, large funds impacting the market with their derivative trading strategies, over half of the New York Stock Exchange trades implemented by computers via their algorithms, and most of the stocks in the indices have been moving sideways and even down. Speaking for myself, I do conclude that the stock market value proposition goes something like this. Those who remain invested in the stock market for the long term, and I consider long term 10 years, 20 years or more, do well as the major stock sell-offs ultimately recover and the market ultimately moves higher. This is our story through all U.S. recessions and depressions and financial crises. The key is to own a diversified group of high-quality stocks and stay invested for 10, 20, 30, or more years. I think this time is no different. However, not everyone can remain invested at every point in time for the next 10, 20, or 30 more years. Those who cannot remain invested and cannot ride out the long cycles cannot afford to kid themselves. For example, if one is within 15 or 20 years of planned retirement, much less in retirement, the long term may be too long. In this case, which is my case, I conclude that the systemic risks of the market are too high to remain fully invested. I would rather miss the next 10% gain in the markets, if they come anytime soon, to avoid facing a severe sell-off or two sell-offs or three sell-offs, which is more typical after a severe recession and especially a depression. We've only had one. Severe sell-offs during economic recoveries are the historical rule, not the exception. I fully accept short-term declines in the stock market, which may be of the magnitude of last year, in this past year. In other words, I fully expect and accept that we can very reasonably have 30 or 40% declines. It could be next week, next month, next year. I don't know when, and no one else can possibly know. What I think I do know is that the funds or forces moving the markets up will change. They always do. And their investment shifts will drive the markets down, just as SoftBank will drive stocks down when they reverse their call option positions. It's quite possible the world's largest funds in the near term will shift investment strategies because they're constantly evaluating them. And a few of them, as strategies are shifted, will lose out and they'll disappear. This is typical when major shifts occur in investment strategies. Again, the markets are not a market of 100 million investors or 200 million investors. They're a market where there may be a thousand large high net worth funds Sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, mutual funds, family investment funds. And these are the parties that really control 80% plus of the stock and bond markets, including the Federal Reserve and central banks. So we're not looking across all investors in all markets. It's a very small number of groups that can shift investments and do and have very large impacts on the rest of us. 
These shifts leave us small investors with our long-term holding strategies, and we ultimately suffer by waiting for the next new uptrends in our securities, which could occur over very long time frames. I only suggest now thinking about whether you and your family have the capacity to risk one or more stock market crashes over the next year or two or three. Even if the stock prices hit all-time new highs again next week or next month, is that going to be an obstacle that you can comfortably overcome and remain invested in the very long term? It's worth considering, as the answer depends on your age, your family financial needs, your ability to sleep well and feel comfortable. Third major area I'd like to comment on relating to risk is the continuing Federal Reserve pattern of new money creation. And this continuing pattern keeps the systemic risk of dollar declines and future high inflation in focus. So far this year, during the Fed's creation of more than $3 trillion of new money, our dollar has dropped almost 10%, and this means that many of our imports of everything from pharmaceuticals to cars to machinery and consumer items are getting more expensive for us. Meanwhile, the Fed has formally acknowledged in the past week or so that it will be prepared to live with higher inflation in the U.S., and I think they are announcing that they can live with it, which means they think it's coming, in my view. Despite the COVID business recession, prices appear again on the march upwards from eating out at those small number of restaurants that are surviving COVID, needing price increases, to new homes, which are in a boom period as many families move into the suburbs, to overall food prices. Once inflation is acknowledged by the market as a future issue, and this can happen any time now, but I suspect it may be several more months away because more data is going to be required to support that conclusion. But as this information becomes more baked into the market, the bond market will require higher interest rate returns as the bond market relies upon investors placing long-term investments in obligations that run 15, 20, 30 or more years. And these are not obligations at today's interest rates people can expect investors to sign up for with inflation increasing again. And it's useful to recall the Fed controls the short-term interest rates very well. They're very effective at that. But it cannot control long-term rates for all but a few weeks because the bond market is simply too large for even the Fed to control. As we've discussed in the past, the U.S. bond market is approximately 70, 70 billion dollars in market value. And the Fed so far, by creating $3 trillion, has uh, certainly created a lot of money, but nowhere near $70 trillion. When long-term interest rates move up, and this is an axiom, when long-term interest rates move up, bond prices do move down. And that will create new issues for cities and states who are unable to support higher borrowing costs and even more restrictive methods of borrowing. This comment and observation extends to companies and individuals who will be newly challenged to make debt repayments on time. We are seeing late debt payments becoming an issue right now in the hotel and restaurant and actually healthcare industries and real estate. We're also seeing that with Fannie Mae and residential, but it's not in the high risk zone just yet. 
But the systemic risk is an up move in long-term interest rates and the resulting down move in bond prices, which affects pretty much everybody, and especially the pension funds, which presently are underfunded. With the cities and states really unable to add to the funding because their tax revenues have been really substantially impacted by COVID. We're facing a perfect storm of high systemic risk. And this perfect storm would even get to be a bigger storm when the U.S. government and the Fed are seen as collaborators in creating new currency to buy new government bonds to pay future principal and interest on the government bonds. China has recently indicated their potential to sell the trillion-dollar-plus of U.S. Treasury bonds they own, but even on its own, that's manageable. For example, the Fed would create another trillion dollars of new currency and pay it to the Chinese. However, in a perfect storm, too much money creation, too much new government borrowing, a declining dollar, and no growth economy may morph us into another follow-on financial crisis. That would be a debt crisis with investor aversion for lending for the long term on government bonds as well as corporate bonds. There's no way to predict the timing of the next crisis, but it's brewing. You can see it. How to reduce risk? Well, I for one, I avoid ownership of long-term bonds and long-term bond funds. All of that being said, the largest elephant in the room may be the election. The two political parties are diametrically opposed on pretty much everything, except more federal government spending and debt and support of more Federal Reserve money creation. Whichever party is elected, I think that is going to be the impact. In my view, risks will continue to rise before the election, during the election, and even, and maybe especially, after the election. The worst case is so incredibly bad, it can actually sink the future stock, bond, and currency markets. But I'm not going to dwell on the worst possible case. I'll let you decide what the worst case can look like, as I'm not a politician, but all roads lead to some bad outcomes, in my view, especially with respect to continued money creation, continued new debt issuance, and future inflation. My risk mitigation is to step aside as much as possible from the historically high stock and bond markets. I don't want to risk new money in the short term on real estate in addition to stock and bond markets as prices in real estate could drop as they did during the 08-09 Great Recession. Back then they snapped back, if you call a snap back, 7 to 10 years. Across the United States, that's about how long it took for residential real estate to get back to prior levels. This time, with new real estate highs in many markets, we may face another long-term recovery from a new drop. Commercial real estate is even a riskier story as companies cut back on their office and retail needs. Again, my own mitigation strategy is to wait in the wings from now until year-end. From now, through the election, through a few months after the election, to see the after-effects. Is this the right thing to do? Well, we'll find out in four months or so. I'll either preserve my capital and reinvest at better prices later on, Or alternatively, I may reinvest later and pay higher prices if all goes perfectly well. My own priority is to protect my savings and past investment gains. For that, I'll risk missing higher market prices, which have a lot of obstacles to surmount, as we just discussed. To have a bit more detail and perspective, I would like to invite you to join our free class, which I've mentioned in prior podcasts. The free class is called the 2020 Panic, What's Next? 
Navigating Panics, Recessions, and Recoveries. If you'd like to enroll for free, our class begins again in about two weeks. Please do join us. If you go to www.uclaextension.edu, scroll down this homepage to the box that has no-cost educational resources and tools, and click on the box that is my course, The 2020 Panic, What's Next, Navigating Panics, Recessions, and Recoveries, and then just enroll. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and be financially careful. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.